Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to my podcast number 464, DEI Basics for SLPs and Therapists in Early Intervention and Pediatrics, brought to you by my website, Teach Me to Talk, where we're the largest provider of ASHA-approved CEUs for early intervention. Thank you so much for being here, and let me explain what you're watching or listening to. Each of my podcasts is a continuing education course for therapists. Now, today we're taking a diversion from the topics that we usually talk about, which is early intervention, and we're going to be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. The abbreviation is DEI, and I'll use that frequently throughout this course. Now, there's a new ASHA requirement for all speech-language pathologists to take a two-hour course in DEI beginning in 2023, and I believe that that's probably the reason that most of you are here. And let me also say that I received lots of emails asking me if I would do this course with the appropriate spin. <laughs> that was my favorite one. So that's what we're going to do today. Now, because I am a speech-language pathologist and because this is an ASHA requirement, we are going to look at the information provided by ASHA. And in case that's new to you, it's the American Speech-Language and Hearing Association, and that's the national credentialing body for all speech-language pathologists in the United States. You can find out all the information that we're going to talk about today at ASHA's practice portal and that uh, website is asha.org. The link is below to purchase CE credit for this course and this course is two hours which will satisfy your DEI requirement. All right so be sure to go get your handout because we have lots to talk about today and it's a, a long handout so I hope that you'll have that ready as we begin our course. Now to begin our look at basic concepts involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion, let's start with a review of the cultural terminology which may be new for you. Now if you are employed by a larger organization or a school system, you may have already had this kind of training, but for those of us in private practice, it may be our first exposure. So let's look at these words and definitions. And again, you can follow along on your handout and the, if you need the handout, it's at teachmetotalk.com is my website and the show number is four. 464. All right, let's review. The first one is cultural responsiveness. So what is cultural responsiveness? Cultural responsiveness involves understanding and appropriately including and responding to the combination of cultural variables and the full range of dimensions of diversity that an individual brings to interaction. So that's that big overall kind of global thing that we're going to be talking about today cultural responsiveness. Now, cultural responsiveness requires valuing diversity, seeking to further your cultural knowledge, and working toward the creation of community spaces and workplaces where diversity is valued. All right, the second term is cultural competence. So what is cultural competence? Cultural competence is a dynamic and complex process requiring ongoing self-assessment. So you decide cultural competence and where you are in this whole um, paradigm with this. So it's also uh, continuing continuous cultural education, openness to others' values and beliefs, and a willingness to share your own values and beliefs with other people. Now, this process evolves over time. It begins with understanding where you are with your own culture, uh, continues through reciprocal interactions with individuals from various other cultures, and it extends through one's own lifelong learning experience. Okay, the third term that we want to talk about right now is cultural humility. So, what is 
cultural humility. This refers to the understanding that one must begin with a personal examination of your own beliefs and your own cultural identity to better understand the beliefs and cultural identities of others. Now, cultural humility encourages us to consider power balances and imbalances in our interactions, and that provides a structure so that we can examine our own personal and then beyond that, institutional accountability. And so what is a power imbalance? So a power imbalance is an environment, a relationship, or an interaction where one party has far more social power than the other. So let's talk about a few examples of power imbalances that relate to our profession. Now, mostly these have to do with authority. And so when we think about authority, you might think about your boss or your supervisor and how that relationship between you and your boss, or let's, let's think about it in, uh, let's go ahead and think about it in a way that's even a little more um, uh, kind of t uh, one-sided there. Let's say that there's a supervisor and maybe a student or uh, again, where that that there's there's that inequality is kind of there from the beginning, and so let's talk about how a student might feel compelled to complete requests that may be unethical or questionable. So let's say let's kind of take both of those relationships. Let's say that you are a new clinical fellow, so you are it's your first year out of grad school, and so the supervisor for the clinical fellow who's coming in to be with her that day asks her to have coffee waiting when she arrives. How uh, how would that make her feel? How how would how should the supervisor kind of think about that? See, and I think about if we're thinking about even a boss uh, therapist relationship there, or supervisor supervisee, that's even a little bit different when somebody has to sign off, say, on your clinical fellow paperwork. And so it might be fine to ask your boss, or certainly fine to ask your friend to have a coffee waiting for you if you know that she uh, is going to swing through Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks anyway. But it's inappropriate for a supervisor to require that so um, you have to think about it and if you have difficulty with that if you think no it's not we've done this for years this is kind of what we do it's think about it if it were a man and a woman and that kind of puts it in a different perspective for a lot of women and so think about it that way and so does it pass the sniff test Probably not. So that's what we're thinking about with a power uh, imbalance. We can also see this with the families that we work with, with client relationships. So let's pretend that we have a therapist who is very um, domineering and who thinks that her way is always the best way. So what would a parent do in that situation if they were opposed to maybe a behavioral approach that the therapist was using? What if they felt that that therapist was really, there was an underlying kind of mean-spiritedness there. What would a parent do in a power balance like that? Well, they might keep quiet because they want their child to continue to receive, receive services, right? But they also might do that uh, with fear that if they speak up that their child might somehow be mistreated or somehow slighted. So we have to think about those kinds of things. So let's talk about other kind of uh, common power imbalances. What if we're working with a family who's from a culture where eye contact is incredibly disrespectful and even rude during conversation? And so what if we're insisting that their child doesn't make eye contact and we, we kind of talk about what a disadvantage that puts that child at, but, and then the parents don't speak up. Why? Again, because of fear. And they, a lot of times, don't even really understand or may not understand what you're talking about. And again, that that cultural difference is there. And so we have to be super aware of this and when we sense hesitancies with a goal or with a report, we have to ask a lot of questions and we have to listen.
listen. And that's a really good example of cultural humility. And again, cultural humility, just like we talked about with cultural responsiveness and cultural competence, this is a lifelong process of self-reflection. And so because of that, cultural competency, competence requires humility to evolve over time. And again, that begins with an understanding of your own culture and maybe even your own biases. So these terms are concepts. Cultural responsiveness, cultural competence, and cultural humility are all dynamic, complex, and as we've said four or five times now, lifelong processes. These terms are not mutually exclusive and they've sometimes been used interchangeably. And I like this explanation that Ash has given us to kind of differentiate and then and we're going to use these terms kind of moving forward. Uh, cultural humility is a way of thinking. Cultural competence is a way of becoming and a culturally responsive practice is a way of doing. And so we have to strive for growth in all three of those areas. Now, our purpose here is not so that we are uh, conforming with today's cultural or societal norms. Our purpose for all this is what? Is to better serve the families that we are responsible for serving. And so we have to kind of keep that in mind too. And I don't know what your purpose is for taking this course beyond the two-hour ASHA requirement, but that really should be our, uh, our overall purpose in all of this is just to do better on an everyday basis for the individuals that we work with. Now for the purpose of this course moving forward, we're, I'm not going to trip all over myself trying to say all three of those terms. We're just going to use one term and it's the overall term that ASHA has chosen for this and it's cultural responsiveness. And so that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the course. Now an overall summary statement to summarize the DEI effect on our clinical practices is this one and it's on your handout so I hope that you'll take a look at that now. So clinical approaches such as interview style, assessment tools, and therapeutic techniques that are appropriate for one individual may not be appropriate for another. And so when we read this, you might think, you know, that is not an earth-shattering statement, Laura. <laughs> we all know that and we practice like that all the time, but we really, really, again, this is, this is not um, maybe you're thinking about DEI, that this is something completely new, and again, we're having to kind of conform to all these things that we may not even necessarily agree with, but if we boil it down to this, we know that we never have a one-size-fits-all, right? Especially in early intervention, and if you are like me and if you've done this job for a while, and you've worked with families for years and years and years, you already know that. We adjust ourselves. We go in and we establish close personal relationships. And when we sense that something is going wrong or that we are missing something there, we take a step back and look at that, or that's what we should be doing. And again, all of the DEI things that we're talking about today really um, encompass the things that we've already been doing with that, with adjusting how we talk to parents, the kinds of questions that we ask during the assessment process, and especially <laughs> the therapy techniques we use. We modify those kinds of things all the time, and that is exactly the same thing that we're talking about right now. So it's super important to recognize the unique influence of an individual's cultural and linguistic background, and that that may change over time. I certainly 
have changed things in my career of nearly 30 years over time, and I bet that you have too. And again, it's according to circumstance. And so interactions in the workplace with authority figures within a social context. And so again, all of this is influenced by our work setting, right? And what do we call that? We have a term for this, right? It's called code shifting or code switching, right? We do that already. So for example, the DEI issues for an early intervention therapist who does predominantly home visits is going to be dramatically different from a speech language pathologist who practices in a large university clinic and who has lots of colleagues with different fields and you're interacting, interacting with professionals and different professionals, even that in the context of your overall organization, but not necessarily in your department. And so such changes always require those adjustments. And like we said, we, we code switch all day long, right? We do it all day every day and so how we speak to one family in their home may also be dramatically different than maybe how we would even speak to that same family if they had seen us in a different context or a different environment. So if they had been coming to you in your own private clinic or if they had been coming to a public school program, certainly we're going to have some interaction and, and, and uh, style differences uh, just due to the environmental changes, right? So why should cultural responsiveness be important to us as clinicians and practicing therapists? ASHA has defined four reasons that cultural responsiveness impacts a provider. And so let's run through these. First of all, cultural responsiveness will help you respond to demographic diversity. And so I bet you're seeing lots and lots of different kinds of families than you've seen in the past. The range at the, uh, at the beginning of your career might have been quite different than the range now. So again, we're all experiencing that diversity. The second way that cultural responsiveness impacts a provider's ability is by understanding and responding to social determinants of health. We're gonna talk about those SDOH. We're gonna talk about those uh, in just a minute. And health disparities as they impact different populations. There's some factors that we're going to discuss that again uh, are eye-opening if you've not thought about that before. But chances are you've thought about it or uh, else you would not be in this field. The third way that it impacts a provider's ability is uh, by improving the quality of services and health outcomes. So when we're culturally responsive, we do offer a higher uh, degree of uh, just quality to parents because again it's not that one size fits all we're really uh, taking into consideration all the different variables that a child and a family are experiencing as we work with them and the last thing that cultural responsiveness and serv service delivery does for a provider is it helps us meet legislative regulatory and accreditation mandates and again that's why most of us are here right all right so let's look at the second bullet point that we talked about social determinants of health and health disparities and this is on the bottom of page one if you're of your handout if you're following along so what are social determinants of health and again this is abbreviated as SDOH these are described by the World Health Organization as non-medical factors and forces in someone's daily life that impact their health outcomes so where someone was born where they live where they work where they play where they worship 
all of these contribute to health risk and health outcomes. And so the SEOH recognizes when we use that, it recognizes that individual and population health, as well as health inequities, are influenced by your physical environment, by your socioeconomic factors, and access to and quality of the healthcare available to you and your own personal health. And so the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services groups SDOH into five domains. And I think this is one that you've probably seen before. And if you are working in a state early intervention uh, program, chances are these are things that you are discussing with your team as you develop your IFSP and as you work closely with your service coordinators. So the first one there is economic stability. And so what is economic stability? Can you afford to your life? <laughs> Can you afford to live? Do you have enough money to pull all those things together? And so again, opportunities for steady employment, that's a big factor and certainly the affordability of food, housing, healthcare, and education. So that's number one is uh, are, we have to look at that economic stability. Are there enough resources to provide the things that we all need every day? Uh, place to live, food to eat, and again, access to healthcare. The second one is education access and quality. And so does a child have access to high quality services? That would be you, right? Or a program where they can get the therapy services that they need. Will they have access to high performing schools when they become school age? Uh, what are the barriers to participation in school? And again, these are things that our service coordinators and social workers discuss routinely with families. And we as, as speech language pathologists and other early intervention therapists uh, are party to these uh, discussions too, but we have to really kind of go beyond that and uh, uh, access or uh, evaluate these, uh, assess these factors on our own. So what are barriers to participation in school? For us, and again, for a school-age child, this is going to look different than um, early intervention or a high schooler. These kinds of factors are going to look different for the toddlers that we treat. So for us, what would be a barrier to participation in services? Family instability, right? Lack of transportation. That would That's a big one if a child is coming to you if you're not doing home services. What about motivation of parents? That's a big barrier to participation, right? And access to uh, quality services. And there may be other social and cultural barriers. And when we look at this broader, not just for our little guys uh, that we're specifically talking about, but even um, as they uh, age, High-performing schools, and again, that's throughout their whole uh, academic career. So elementary school, middle school, high school, and even post-secondary education. So are there options for uh, children even beyond uh, when they uh, are on their own? The third SDOH uh, factor that we're looking at here is healthcare access and quality. So access to insurance, access to a primary care provider, access to preventative care, and proximity to qualified providers, pharmacies, and medical supply stores. And so this is a big one for us as speech language pathologists. At Teach Me to Talk, I get emails 
almost every day where a family is saying, I'm on a six month wait list for speech therapy, or I'm on a one year wait list to have my child evaluated to see if he or she is autistic. And so certainly those kinds of things continue to happen even in the United States. And if you practice in a more rural area, which I've certainly done, before and you know would drive 150 miles you know in the course of a day <laughs> to uh, see families who were in outlying rural areas you know at the beginning of my career that was a really big deal and so many families are so grateful for the opportunity to receive services at home because again we're coming to them and we don't have to they don't have to deal with the transportation issues and those other kinds of things and so that certainly is a factor that we see in early intervention a lot, right? Access to quality services. All right, the fourth factor here is uh, the child's environment as far as his neighborhood and his built environment. So what's going on there? How violent is the community that he lives in? Is this child exposed to crime, <laughs> even as an infant or a toddler or a preschooler? Let's think about environmental safety. How's the safety uh, of the water? So water safety, air quality, those kinds of things are a big deal. And we certainly have had lots of news stories in the past year with the, the water issues that happened in Mississippi and that happened in Michigan. And so certainly even the, the disasters that we saw in Ohio uh, earlier this year are a big deal for families. And so certainly when we look at kind of the, that hierarchy of needs, if they're living in a place that is unsafe for them health-wise, their child's services as far as speech therapy or other educational priorities are going to fall way down the list when we start looking at the other kinds of real crises that a family might be experiencing. Uh, another factor here would be exposure to hazards such as noise or secondhand smoke. And with all the wildfires from Canada that we've seen this year as well, lots of the U.S. has been covered in smoke. And so that's certainly something that's really relevant to all of us right now. Another point here would be access to healthy foods. So does a family live in a community where they can get uh, fresh foods or is everything again when, when we think about uh, uh, just a healthy diet does a family have access to provide that for their child and then certainly opportunities to exercise and you may have grown up like me uh, in the 60s and 70s where we played outside where we had I, I saw a YouTube the other day where a lady was talking about you know her mom routinely sent them outside and locked the door and they were not supposed to come home till supper time uh, I didn't have quite that extreme, but certainly we played outside all day every day and so many of the families that we see don't even have an opportunity to do that. And so when we, uh, we discuss that with parents and they know it's a priority, but again, where they live really, really prevents that. So that's uh, certainly a factor that we need to be considering and, and talking about with families. And then the last, the fifth one here of our SDOHs that we're calling them is social and community context. So social supports within the community. Does a family have that? If there are no um, close family members there, do they have an opportunity to build relationships with other people that again, you know, they're so important for establishing uh, even mental health is that consistent contact with other people <laughs> beyond the people who live in, in your home with you. 
The next one is civic participation. So do they have an opportunity to participate in their communities, to vote, to uh, have a say in those kinds of things, or even if, if, they're, if they're not uh, able to do that yet because of the immigration status, certainly can they participate uh, in the groups that are going on within their communities? Is there discrimination? That's certainly a big, a big thing to consider for a family. And even if, as as we as providers might say, no, you know, we don't, we don't know, we don't know how that family is feeling and how they're processing and interpreting the experiences that happen to them. So that certainly is a possibility. Uh, what about their workplace conditions? D- does Dad have to work? three part-time jobs to pull it together and he's got a crazy schedule that is certainly going to impact what's going on with uh, that family and then again rates of incarceration and if you saw um, my or took my course with ACEs uh, adverse childhood uh, events and the effects that those have on children having a close family member or lots of close family members who have been incarcerated or who are currently in prison is is again a, a thing that's going to go with that child for the rest of their life so considering those factors are super super important all five of those areas can significantly impact a person or a family's health So now let's talk about SDOH application. How can we apply this information? So a person's SDOH may shape their views toward health and health care, and they may influence their access to health services and supports. So for example, I bet you've experienced this already in your practice. You may have parents that appear to be suspicious, (laughs) for lack of a better word. They may be thinking you are just uh, and again, these are because of those predetermining factors that we've already talked about. They may, and again, may not under kind of even understand or have previous experience with this kind of system. So they may think this therapist is qualifying my child because they need the income or they, they need the slot filled in their program. And most of us as SLPs know there are more than enough children for all of us to see, right? And so sometimes that's due, those suspicions or that just hesitancy is due to those factors that we talked about. Now these are important considerations as clinicians plan our evaluation, our treatment, and our discharge activities and recommendations. And so when we identify and address those factors along with another kind of uh, rating system that we're going to look at now with a person's functional status and personal goals we can really create achievable sustainable comprehensive plans for our clients so we have to screen for those factors and we have to combine the results with community-based resources this is an important step for providers and for interprofessional teams and so like our ifsp teams and our iep teams these are things that we should be talking about even as speech language pathologists and helping uh, a family Uh, integrate and access all the services that they need uh, for their child. So if you work in that state early intervention program, this is valuable information so that we can adjust our strategies and provide the very best help possible to meet families right where they are. If you're in private practice, you may not have a mechanism for this, but ASHA has developed some really good resources along with goal examples by diagnosis uh, when we are looking at these factors. So let's Let's go ahead and take a look at this. So SDOH, so social determinants of health may be captured through the International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health 
framework. So that's ICF framework. I bet you've heard of that before. And if you are, I bet you've had it in grad school. If you're uh, have not, uh, if you're a recent grad, but for those of us who have not had that in formal education, let's take a look at what this is. So the ICF is a classification of health and health-related conditions for children and adults. It was developed by the World Health Organization and published in 2001. So it's been around for a while. The ICF framework can be used in interprofessional collaborative practice and person-centered care. So let's look at it. And again, I bet this is not your first time to look at ICF, uh, the ICF framework. So what are the components? The ICF framework consists of two parts. The first part is functioning and disability. And the second part is contextual factors. And so these parts are further broken down in the following matter, so, manner. So functioning and disability includes the physical part, so body functions and structures. And so this describes the actual anatomy and physiology or the psychology of the human body. So everything that's going on physically, and the next part of that is their activity and participation. So as therapists, we think about that as the current functional status. So what is this? This describes what a person can currently do. And so this includes communication, mobility, interpersonal interactions, self-care, learning, applying knowledge. And again, for us, we might think about this is how a child might do on uh, you know, a five area global assessment. And so uh, again, this is looking at uh, uh, comparing where a child is compared to where we would expect him to be for how old he is. So look at the contextual factors. Now what are these? These are things that we talked about uh, like with the SDH fact, SDOH factors that we just talked about. So environmental factors. So these are factors that are not within a person's ability to control. Their family. We do not choose the families we were born into. Their work. And again, um, you may have the perfect job and we are so blessed to be able to do that. But so many families that we are working with are underemployed. They're not working in a field that feels satisfying to them. So that certainly is a factor as well. They may not be, again, economically as stable as they need to be because they don't have the option to pursue the kind of work that uh, would provide that for them and their families. Other environmental factors, government agencies, laws. So the things that we uh, all have to comply with and then cultural beliefs are an environmental factor too. And then let's look at the personal factors that are included under this uh, second area in the ICF framework. So this would include race, gender, age, education level, coping style, so someone's mental health, Personal factors, again, are not specifically coded in the ICF because of that wide variability among cultures, but they are included in the framework. Because though they are uh, independent of the health condition, they may have an influence on how a person functions. And again, sometimes we don't always consider that because we're looking at that. Uh, like we talked about at the beginning, the body functions, structures, and activity and participation. So the functioning piece, not necessarily all of those additional contextual factors. So um, let's talk about too how ICF looks at functioning versus what we as therapists, we probably, uh, especially if we have been more medically based in our training, we might think of ourselves more with the international classification of diseases and related health problems. So we know that as what? ICD codes, ICD-9 codes, ICD-10 codes that we use for billing and payment. So the ICF looks at 
functioning. And ICD codes look again at the disease process or things that uh, again um, are more, I guess you could say negative there. So therefore, well, we have to put those two together to provide a more comprehensive picture of the health of individual persons and then also populations. So the ICF is not based on etiology or consequence of disease like the ICD codes are, but it's a component of health. And so it's certainly an important consideration. While functional status may be related to the health condition, knowing the health condition does not predict functional status. And we see that all the time where a child may have uh, the, two children may have the exact same diagnosis, but they're living in different homes. There are other, other variables that, again, one child has uh, maybe more options and more access than another child. So even though they have the same diagnosis and might be matched pretty closely on those physical kinds of characteristics, there still might be a pretty big gap in that functional status because of all the other factors that we've discussed. So ASHA has developed some great handouts by diagnosis written according to this IS. ICF framework. So we're going to look at the one for language disorders because when I was researching information for this uh, course, this is the one that I felt applied more to us as early intervention therapists and uh, speech language pathologists. So look at this and this is actually page three, page four and five of your handout is this orange handout, and again, this is from ASHA. So person-centered focus on function for language disorder. So it go, this is just a nice way to sum it up if you've never thought about it before. And again, this is something that we're doing with our IFSPs when we are making these kinds of plans with families and our IEPs. If you work in a preschool program and see some preschoolers who are beyond age three. And so um, this is a nice handout to kind of look at that. Uh, and the first page here really is informational for you. So what are person-centered functional goals? And so these are goals identified by the child in partnership with the clinician and family that allow participation in meaningful activities and roles. And so certainly with us who work with toddlers and young preschoolers, the family's going to be determining those kinds of priorities for that child. The second section, why target person-centered functional goals? And again, all the reasons here that we all know as therapists, we want to maximize the outcomes that lead to functional improvements. We want our kids to communicate in a better way than they've been able to before uh, we were involved with that family. Uh, we certainly want to, want to work on things that are important to that family. We want to optimize the child's potential to participate in meaningful activities. And again, this would be in his home or beyond that. To facilitate a partnership that ensures that the child and family have a voice in the care that's received and in the outcomes achieved. And then to demonstrate the value of skilled services to payers. So we want families to see a benefit uh, for us being involved in their child's life and in their lives. And so again, there's some descriptive things here. There's a nice chart that talks about the interrelatedness of the health condition and then activities and participations, body functions and structures, and then the environmental and personal factors. And those are the things that we just talked about. So the second page is a case study. And I love that the case study little boy is named Johnny. <laughs> so we look at this for language disorder. So um, assessment data is here. And so we've got uh, the child's, and again, this is just a case study. So you have his scores how we did on the self, 
the uh, PPVT, the EVT, and you can take a look at that, the gift test. So we've got all of his stats right there, his assessment results. And then uh, over in the next column, we look at his activity and participation. So what things have his parents decided are difficult for him? What are the problems that they have described? And again, this is totally different than his uh, assessment results. So uh, for example here, Johnny has difficulty making friends and being included in other children's games. He has difficulty joining in conversation with his peers. He has difficulty communicating independently with unfamiliar adults. And so when an adult can't do the heavy lifting, it's hard for him. He, he's, he's not as not able to communicate as effectively as he does with his parents or other familiar um, adults in his life. He also has difficulty telling adults about past events. Uh, and then a strength here. He enjoys having family members read to him. And so then the next section, what are the environmental and personal factors? And so you have his biographical data here. He's four years old. He attends a Head Start program. He enjoys preschool where he interacts more often with teachers than with peers. He has, and then you list, he has access to speech language services because you are his you are his therapist. He has a team. And then it goes on to describe his other personal factors. So his living environment. He lives with his mother who has a learning disability and his grandmother who has a hearing impairment. They live in a low socioeconomic neighborhood and then certainly information about their primary language. And it says here English is the only language spoken in his home. And so then we look at the clinical reasoning with some summary statements there and then the goal setting. And again, you can take a look at this, I, I, this for an example, and I think it is a nice way to summarize it. Lots of times you're writing this kind of information in your reports anyway. So this would be a great way for you to kind of organize it. And if you are in private practice and you're just looking at a way that you can tighten things up and have more structure and more, uh, again, make your practices more in line with uh, using some of these established frameworks, that, that's one that you will probably want to take a look at. Let's discuss starting point for training for cultural responsiveness. So just like every other skill set, you can't just learn about it. You have to be able to apply the set of knowledge and skills to provide services, again, that are uniquely tailored to each individual that we see. So self-reflection is a starting point for cultural responsiveness. And by self-reflection, what do I mean? It, I mean looking at where you stand <laughs> with regard to these issues. And so I want to refer you now to a few resources that ASHA has developed to help you self-evaluate your own cultural responsiveness. And these are the last few pages of your handout. Now, we have not gone completely through the first three pages, so don't feel like, oh, we're flying. And no, we're going to back up to, I believe that we were probably on page two or three um, when we were, when we started talking about these other handouts. But I want you to take a look at these uh, last three handouts in your handout packet. Now, when I first started looking at these, I looked immediately to see where did this come from? Who is the source on this? And it's actually from early intervention. And so these tools started primarily and they were developed for therapists in early intervention in childhood settings. And so primarily those of us who do a home health model or a preschool model. And so I hoped it would be really applicable to our everyday practices. 
more so than other DEI resources, and you may or may not agree with that. Um, I wasn't wholeheartedly sold when I started looking at it, but I do want you to know that this information is available to you. So let's start with the first one, which it says cultural competence check-in, and this one is called self-reflection, and this is, again, you can find this on ASHA's website at asha.org. Um, in the cultural, in the practice portal section, and it's again titled cultural responsiveness, which is how we are talking about it today. And so we'll look at this together so you can just see what it looks like. If we were doing this course live, I would probably say, let's all fill it out now. But I think that's super impractical on a self-guided course like this. So I'm just going to direct your attention to these. And again, those are right there in your handout for you to be able to take a look at. So. And again, some, you're going to rate yourself. It's a rating, a one through five, you strongly agree, and a five, you strongly disagree. And so let me say, you are probably going to find some things that you disagree with on these checklists, maybe for a variety of reasons. I don't know all the reasons that you may, some of these things may not sit perfectly well with you. And you know what? That is fine. There's no right or wrong answer here. You are just assessing where you are. Uh, take, for example, if your core spiritual beliefs really clash with some of these points, this is an opportunity for self-reflection so that you can firm up your own position about some of these topics. But at the same time, we still have to maintain professional credibility, right? And we still have to understand cultural responsiveness. And for me, that, you know, again, looks like kindness. And it looks like loving the people around me, regardless of where they're from or their skin color or how they're alike uh, with, with me, how they're like me, how they're different from me. And again, you, you, can, you can look at how you're going to... Uh, pull all this together. So, um, and we're not going to do all of these questions, but let's just read a few. I'm aware, I'm aware of and acknowledge the influence of others' cultural backgrounds. I'm aware of my beliefs and value systems and do not impose them on others. I believe that it's acceptable to use a language other than spoken English in the United States. I accept all levels of acculturation into the dominant culture. And again, you can go down and read um, the rest of these and, and respond. I am driven to respond to others' insensitive comments or behaviors. I do not knowingly participate in insensitive comments or behaviors. I'm aware that the roles of family members may differ within or across cultures or families. Uh, and so read through these things. And certainly um, for us as speech language pathologists, the information in the right side of the column is on this first handout. It's really, really important. I understand that the use of a foreign accent or limited English skill is not a reflection of reduced intellectual capacity or the ability to communicate clearly and effectively. I understand how culture can affect child rearing practices with the following. Discipline, dressing, toileting, feeding, self-help skills, expectations for the future, and communication. I understand the impact of culture on, and again, it gives you lots of variables here, access to health care, education, family roles, religion, and faith-based practices, gender roles, alternative medicine, Customs, practices, and traditions, perception of time, 
the use of AAC, <laughs> uh, views on wellness, views on disability versus ability, the value of Western medical treatment, or certainly even employment. And so we also are looking at how cultural norms may influence social communication. And that's certainly important to us as speech language pathologists. And again, if we're working with a family who has really different behavioral and interactional um, components, they value different things than we do in our American culture, we're going to see some differences there. And so eye contact, interpersonal space, use of gestures, comfort with silence, <laughs> turn taking, you know, interrupting may be extremely rude in many, many cultures. And lots of us do that because we're used to having the floor and saying what we want to say. Topics of conversation, asking and responding to questions, greetings, interruptions, there it is. Use of humor, decision-making roles, directness, that's a big one, right? And then play, including the value of play. So a good tool for you to, again, no right or wrong answers. It's just to kind of know where you are and, and again, where you stand on these kinds of issues. Okay, so let's take a look at the next tool. And this one is policies and procedures. And so this tool was developed to heighten your awareness of your agency's programs, policies, and procedures, and the impact or influence of cultural and linguistic factors. And again, this says there's no answer key, but you should review the responses which you rated no. <laughs> and so this gives you a starting point, and it also lets you know, again, where you stand and how you need to come to terms with your own views and then how those align with practices so that you are not discriminatory and so that you are inclusive and that you recognize, uh, again, diversity and equality. And so uh, the first one, my agency or program has a mission statement which states that all persons shall receive appropriate services. My agency program has a visible policy that commits to providing a safe space for all individuals, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, ability, language spoken, or sexual orientation. My agency program has a policy for providing conscience protections for staff or employees. That's very, very important for those of us who have uh, say, religious and spiritual differences with uh, some of the things that we are being asked to do. Do we have a way to conscientiously object to those things? Is there a policy? My program or agency has a policy for handling inappropriate language or behavior related to factors like race, ethnicity, gender, ability, language spoken, or sexual orientation. And so again, Look through this. Uh, some of these are super important, again, for us as SLPs. My agency program has a list of interpreters and resources for making both manually coded and spoken communication available. Um, and, and certainly look at these, um, look at these things and really, really decide what uh, you can do. Some of these things are out of your control if you were working within a large organization or even a small one, if you're not the boss, <laughs> you can't always change how things are, um, how things proceed uh, for the future for your company. But take a look at these kinds of things so that you can know where you stand on these things. And the last one is um, 
self-reflection for a culturally responsive practice. And on this rating scale, again, this is just how we view the influence of culture and language on service delivery. Um, and so you can rate yourself as things I always do, things I sometimes do, and things I rarely do. And so many of these uh, factors here are things that we've already discussed, but just take a look um, at where you are with these. Again, I think that the, some of the issues on the right side are probably a little more pertinent to your everyday practice. I consider cultural norms and preferences when we're planning appointments, holiday celebrations, services in the home, community outings, meals and snacks, homework and recommendations for caregivers. We certainly should be doing that, right? I allow alternative methods of sharing experiences and communication. We're all about that. Any way you can communicate, right? So storytelling, use of props to support the oral tradition that's present in some cultures. I allow for alternatives to written communication. <clears throat> pardon me, which may be preferred. And so again, how do we communicate with parents? We communicate verbally. We model the recommendations. We use, <clears throat> excuse me, video and audio clips. And we use technology. And then when communicating with individuals whose native language is not English, I use trained interpreters and translators, keywords or signs in their language. I bet you've done that, right? Visual aids and gestures or physical prompts. And so Look at this information, and as I said before, you may have some personal beliefs that uh, don't always align with some of the things that you may be asked to do. And so one of the things that I really liked about uh, these resources is it said to really talk about that talk about if there's a way for you to have some conscientious objections or what however your uh, company or program or organization chooses to handle those kinds of things but I think they're important things to think about so I hope that I've given you some tools to be able to do that now let's look at a few key points for cultural responsiveness for speech language pathologists now the opening statement on ASHA's practice portal is this ASHA requires that speech-language pathologists practice in a manner that considers the impact of cultural variables as well as language exposure and acquisition on the individual and their family. And then it says something that's really just obvious. Speech-language pathologists provide services to diverse populations. So professional and clinical competence requires that we practice in a manner that considers individuals each individual's cultural and linguistic characteristics and unique values so that these professionals can provide the most effective assessment and intervention services. And again, that's the reason we're doing all of this is to really make sure that we're providing uh, quality services to the children and the families that we serve. So addressing these kinds of issues is not new for us. ASHA certified practitioners have met academic standards and then professional standards as we went through the CF process that include knowledge of cultural variables and how they may influence communication and service delivery. And again, those are parts of our standards for grad school and for our first year of employment there. Uh, and even ongoing, when we are looking at ASHA's code of ethics that we're 
uh, required to review every time we renew our uh, maintenance intervals there. Every time we renew our, our seeds with ASHA, we're supposed to be looking at that and really reviewing where we are. And again, those, those checklists that we just provided will do that for you. So clinicians are responsible for providing culturally responsive and clinically competent services during clinical interactions so they are together. So ASHA has set some standards regarding responsiveness to the cultural and linguistic differences that affect identification, assessment, treatment, and management. And so these are going to be our key standards or actions that we should take as uh, therapists regarding cultural responsiveness. And so this is, uh, again, let's run through these. These may not be on your handout, so just listen for these kinds of things right now. All right, so responsiveness to cultural and linguistic differences. Uh, we already said that one. So the first one is engaging in an internal self-assessment to consider the influences of one's own biases by, uh, and beliefs and their potential impact on service delivery. And so again, we just did that with our self-assessment tools. Uh, and this is on your handout. I see this now. It's on uh, page two of your handout, middle section, so if you want to follow along. Identifying and acknowledging limitations in education, training, and knowledge, as well as seeking additional resources in education to develop your own cultural responsiveness. So this would be continuing education, networking with community members. You're doing that right now by taking this course, right? The next one is seeking funding for and engaging in ongoing professional development related to cultural responsiveness. And so if you found a way for you to pay for this $10 course today, you already did this, right? Uh, the next one is demonstrating respect for each individual's ability. And we certainly do that as SLPs. That's just a foundation for for our field. So regardless of their age, their culture, their, their dialect, and for someone who has always and will always have a deep Southern ac dialect accent, <laughs> you know, that's certainly something I understand. Disability, ethni uh, ethnicity, gender, gender identity or expression, language, national or regional origin race, religion, sex, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, and veteran status. And so again, that's a very basic statement from our code of ethics. And our code of ethics really guides how we respond to all these things. This is just, again, bumping that up to make sure that the cultural responsiveness portion of that, that we are doing our um, due diligence and making sure that we are where we should be with that. All of us face these things every day with our families. And so in my experience, respect for other cultures really is not an issue for early intervention SLPs. We inherently understand that children, our clients, control what? They control nothing <laughs> about their lives. So it's very easy for us to focus on that and let everything else just fall away. And I think integrating the next one, integrating each individual's traditions, customs, values, and beliefs into service delivery, that's super fun for us as SLPs, right? And we do that with families from other cultures as we learn how their families celebrate holidays or the special occasions in their families. And that's so easy when we're providing home services and are in their homes every week. The next key is recognizing that assimilation and acculturation impact communication patterns during the whole process of identification, assessment, treatment, and management of a disorder or a difference. And so let's define those words, assimilation. What is assimilation? 
Cultural assimilation is the process in which a minority group or a culture comes to resemble a society's major group and how they assimilate the values, behaviors, and beliefs of another group, whether fully or partially. And the different types of cultural assimilation include full assimilation, someone moves to a new country, moves to a new culture, and they are all in they are wanting to learn everything that they can and do again do everything that they um uh, uh, full assimilation they they are they are folding into that other culture the other is forced assimilation meaning that someone else makes them do that <coughs> or or the culture decides that they have to do that so recognizing that assimilation and acculturation impact communication patterns uh, is just a really big deal for us so what is acculturation let's define that so acculturation is a process of social psychological and cultural change that stems from balancing the two cultures while adapting to the prevailing culture of the society so how does somebody come in and and take how do they take their old things and, and what are they going to do? Which parts of that are they going to learn something new? So are they going to learn a new language, ad adopt some new customs? Are they going to change how they dress? Um, are they going to change how the foods that they eat? Will they modify behavior to conform to new so social norms versus their previous ones? Will they make friends from people of the new culture? Will they acquire new cultural knowledge? Will they participate in new cultural activities and hobbies? So those are factors that we look at with acculturation. All right, so let's go back to our list of key points for clinicians with how we are uh, responding and developing our own cultural responsiveness. So again, this basic tenet, we assess and treat each person as an individual and respond to their unique needs as opposed to anticipating cultural variables based on assumptions. So we don't see a child who is from another culture and think, I know exactly what's going on with him because I had treated a kid from this other country before. We're not going to do that. Secondly, we're going to identify appropriate intervention and assessment strategies and materials that do not violate a person's individual unique values or create a chasm between the clinician, the individual, their community, and their support system, which would be their family members. And so um, an example would be, you know, if we know that something is offensive or we anticipate that something is offensive, we're, we're going to avoid that because we don't want to create those situations with our families. Uh, a next key point is assessing health literacy to support appropriate communication with individuals and their support system so that information is presented um, in a health literate format so can a family access your information in their first language can they access information in the in the best language for them to really really understand everything that's going on with their child we also see this just in parents who have low literacy levels so sometimes our parents that we're working with again don't understand the things that we are um, explaining because we keep things in professional jargon or uh, uh, their their low um, education levels or their low literacy levels really prevent them from under fully understanding when we give them a written report so we have to be really really careful with that 
The next um, key that we do is demonstrating cultural humility and sensitivity, and we're respectful of their cultural values when providing clinical services. Another thing we do is refer to and consult with other service providers with the appropriate cultural and linguistic proficiency, including using, and these are some more terms that you may not have heard of before. So you might have to use a cultural informant. So what is or who is a cultural informant? It's a member of or someone familiar with a given culture who can supply relevant information about that culture to a third party member. Sometimes we use our interpreters in this way, right? An interpreter is there with the family and so they might be a cultural informant in addition to uh, an interpreter and translators listed a, a couple of steps on down. So, but sometimes we do that in that way. A cultural broker. This is somebody who acts as a bridge between diverse families and schools or one who advocates for a given culture to a third party member. So we might see that. And again, what I've already talked about, other ways that we consult with other service providers would certainly be an interpreter or a translator when we need to use that. Another key point for developing cultural responsiveness is upholding ethical responsibilities during the provision of clinically appropriate services. ASHA's Code of Ethics was revised this year. Uh, we'll take a, you know, we're not going to be able to take an in-depth look at that, but I certainly want to point you in that direction. I'm going to be doing a course revision on that, so look for that soon. All right, and another key point for cultural responsiveness is advocacy for our clients. And so we have a responsibility to advocate for the, the children that we serve, for all consumers, for families, and certainly for communities who are at risk for or who are presenting with communication and related disorders and differences. And so what, what are some advocacy pointers that are specific to cultural responsiveness. Well, this would be collaborating with professionals across disciplines and with local and national organizations so that we are going to gain knowledge of, develop, and disseminate educational, health, and medical information pertinent to specific communities. So if you live in a, a place where you have a, a big proportion of a different culture within your community, you already know that. You're already working with those families. And so that's certainly, and again, it may it may even be, um, you know, when I've done taught live courses in Ohio and, and uh, Northern Indiana and where clinicians shared that they worked with uh, a large uh, large population of Amish. And so uh, even, we, we may not even have to think about cultures cultures that exist outside of the United States to really, um, you know, we're already doing these things. We're already looking at these things. All right, the next thing might be gaining knowledge and education of high risk factors. So relevant, and a relevant example for us might be, are we working in a community where fetal alcohol syndrome or there's prolific drug use among mothers, is that going on in our communities? You know, are we, in, you know, certainly in Eastern Kentucky, you know, all those years we lived in Kentucky, that was a really big deal. So we have to know those things as clinicians. And again, this is not something new for us. These are things that, you know, with our boots on the ground that we've been dealing with for as long as we've practiced. Uh, the next one is providing education regarding prevention strategies for speech, language, cognitive, hearing, balance, voice, and feeding and swallowing disorders in specific populations. So what are the kids that are in a particular culture at risk for 
because of those cultural factors. The next one is providing appropriate and culturally relevant consumer information. So we talked about our marketing materials, not just those reports, but even the information that we're giving out to communities for outreach, for service provision, for education. And we're considering health literacy, the values and the preferences in the community. And the last one is identifying and educating our community partners regarding the impact of state and federal legislation on service delivery. So this is gonna lead us right into the review of ethical considerations and that's what's coming up next. Next, let's look at ASHA's Code of Ethics regarding cultural responsiveness. So the ASHA Code of Ethics, and again, this is what we sign every time we redo our uh, maintenance, uh, certificate of maintenance interval or whatever we call that. It contains the fundamentals of ethical conduct. And again, this is described by the principles of ethics and by our rules of ethics. So the principles of ethics form the underlying philosophical basis for the code of ethics, whereas the rules are the specific statements of minimally acceptable as well as unacceptable professional conduct. And so what, what would the code of ethics have to say about cultural responsiveness? Well, it establishes the responsibility of each of us to provide culturally and linguistically competent services. I've said that how many times now? Four or five times? <laughs> and to research and avoid discrimination in any of our professional relationships. And again, this is professional to professional or professional client. So discrimination in any professional arena and against any individual, whether subtle or overt, ultimately what? It ultimately dishonors our profession and it harms all those within the practice. So the violation of the code of ethics may have some pretty serious consequences. Not that you just should do these things, uh, but again, these are important for you to know. So that's why we're reviewing what's mandated by our organization. All right, the next natural question for us is, okay, you've told us about cultural responsiveness. We know what it is. We've even looked at those keys. How do we develop it? And so, as we said before, developing cultural responsiveness is an ongoing practice. It, it involves self-awareness, so knowing where you stand. It involves cultural humility, and it may require SLPs to recognize that we don't know about the language and the cultures of the individuals, families, and communities that we serve. And so as a result, then what do we do? We begin to seek culture-specific knowledge and experience in these areas. So what do culturally responsive SLPs look like? And here we're on the bottom of uh, page two of your handout if you're keeping up. So the culturally responsive clinician has the ability to simultaneously appreciate cultural patterns and individual variation, engage in cultural self-scrutiny to assess cultural biases and improve your own self-awareness, utilize evidence-based practice to include client, patient, family characteristics, clinician expertise and empirical evidence in clinical decisions. And so what is that? That's the triangle of EBP and we should all be doing that. It's always, you know, looking at the family and what they want, looking at you and what you know, and then looking at the research. What does the research have to say about that? And sometimes we get confused. We think it's just all research-based when we're not thinking about 
including what we know as people who've done this for a long time and really developed some expertise and certainly what a family's uh, desires are for their own child. The next uh, ability that we're going to look at is understands the communication context and needs of clients and patients and their families by considering uh, communication disorders within the social context. So how does it affect this family from a different culture hearing that their child has autism? How does it affect them when they realize, oh, you know, and sometimes a lot of our families from other cultures think, oh, this is just because he can't learn English. And they really don't realize that there's an underlying language disorder. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about English or whatever their primary language is. And so we have to help families understand that. Culturally responsive clinicians also identify bias and or determine the appropriateness of materials and assessment and treatment materials and practices. So I know that you're looking at that. And we all have these. We all have implicit biases. We all have subconscious biases. And so we know that and we begin our process of self-reflection to uncover those areas for ourselves. And so additionally, culturally responsive clinicians recognize the role of fairness when we're advocating for promoting and providing quality care and education for all the individuals that we serve. There's actually a continuum of cultural competence. And you can look at the researcher's name on your handout that identified this. So the first one is cultural destructiveness. And this stage includes policies, practices, and attitudes that are detrimental to cultures and individuals within those cultures. And so again, this is kind of looking at a starting point. Somebody might be at cultural destructiveness. Number two, you kind of move up. Cultural is still bad, but you move up. Cultural incapacity. At this stage, agencies and individuals do not have the ability to assist those in need. The next one is cultural blindness. At this stage, the prevailing belief is that color or culture makes no difference or does not exist. So you're trying to look at everybody as the same, no matter what. You know, there's there are problems with that. The next one is cultural pre-competence. At this stage, cultural differences are accepted and respected, and it includes ongoing self-assessment of cultural bias. And the last one is advanced cultural competence. At this stage, the individual or agency holds culture in high esteem and works to contribute to knowledge regarding cultural comp culturally competent practice. So look at that, figure out where you are in that continuum, and then we'll take a look at what we need to do about that next. Next, let's look at the specific steps for developing cultural competence. And we've already said a lot of these, so we're going to run through these pretty quickly. We're going to learn about an individual's culture, language experience, history, alternative sources of care, and power differentials. We've talked a lot about that already. We're going to develop a dynamic definition of what constitutes culture that allows for possible change or redefinition as all the participants grow. So as you learn new information, you are going to change and respond to that. The next one is demonstrating respect for individual cultural backgrounds by integrating personal preferences and cultural practices into assessment and treatment, including recognizing the influence of culture on linguistic variations, which may result in variations in communication patterns due to context, communication intent, and communication partner. And again, we call that code switching. 
The next one is recognizing that power in the clinical situation is reciprocal and that individuals receiving services are supported and they're encouraged and they have the capacity to make their own choices and their own changes and to participate in service delivery as they believe that it is appropriate for their child and for their family. And so they decide those things. The next part is identifying cultural variables that are both explicit, so the things that we see that are external, like symbols, food, language, how somebody would dress, or implicit. These are the things that are inside. These are the religious practices, the beliefs, the spiritual beliefs, the educational values, age and gender roles, roles child-rearing practices, and again, fears and perceptions. And so we have to develop an ethnogenetic, ethnogenetic viewpoint that recognizes that groups, cultures, and individuals within them are fluid and complex in their identities and relationships. And so we know that just because someone is from a very, a, a different culture, they're going to have some variables that aren't even necessarily tied to that culture. We're going to move away from the belief that our own ways of life and view of the world are inherently superior to others and they're more desirable. We're going to move away from essentialism and what is that it defines groups as essentially different and with characteristics that are natural to the group and why is that a problem because essentialism does not consider that variation that we all have within a culture and it can lead healthcare professionals to stereotype their patients and when we stereotype someone that usually results in what in discrimination and so we don't want to do that so healthcare professionals may incorrectly focus our practice on beliefs about the group instead of individuals. And as a result, we have got to analyze ourselves and we've got to be really, really careful in how we respond to these kinds of things. We all can recognize cultural variability. And so individuals within all cultures, cultures vary based on their differences, their preferences, their values and experiences. Culture is learned, it is not inherited. So what are the cultural dimensions that are globally applicable and that are reflected in all aspects of life. So what are the things that we look at that make us all uh, individuals that with this variability? It's our family life, our child rearing practices. These are the things that affect us the most, right? Education, employment, and healthcare practices. And so researchers have identified the following as the broadest and most encompassing dimensions of cultural variability. And so these are kind of where somebody could be with uh, these, just looking at all the factors that we just talked about, family life, child rearing, education, employment, healthcare practices. And so they kind of, this researcher came up with uh, classifications that we're going to look at and kind of we'll, we'll be able to judge these things or assess these things. So individualism uh, dash collectivism. So how are individuals integrated into groups? The second factor here or dimension is power distance. How human inequality and or the power of one group over another is interpreted. The next one is masculinity and femininity masculinity and femininity. So what are the emotional roles in a culture and how is, how is that divided between men and women, males and females, between our genders within the culture? The next one is uncertainty avoidance. So the society's stress level in the event of an unforeseeable future. 
How does the culture do with long and short-term orientation? Are people's efforts focused on the past, on the present, or on the future? So how does the culture look at that culturally? How do they respond to that? And then the last one is indulgence versus restraint. And so does a culture value delayed gratification and how do they control desire? So bearing in mind that these cultural dimensions are applied broadly to each country and that individuals may demonstrate individual differences within their country's culture, there's a, a country comparison tool, and this is from Hofstede, 2011, and the link is, again, I told you at uh, asha.org if you want to take a look at this, and you could probably just Google that as well. But this tool displays a graphic visualization of each country's dimension in numerical terms, as well as a display of two or more countries' dimension for comparison. And so we're looking, again, that I thought that information was fascinating, so... I wanted to uh, point that out to you. And this certainly will include additional dimensions, which as SLPs, we need to be aware of. So cultural value orientation. So for an example, how do they feel about time? You know, is, uh, and again, this could be the past, present, future. You know, what are, are they really goal oriented as far as, you know, what they want their kids to achieve long term or, you know, is that different? Verbal communication. So turn taking expectations. Uh, interrupting, eye contact, all of those things that we're all super aware of. Uh, amount of talking aloud among conversational partners. Is it okay to have a 10 minute uh, little monologue there or, or do you need to pull that back because there's not that give and take. Uh, Nonverbal communication, we talked about that with the eye contact, personal space use. And then relational communication norms. What are things that they do in their culture? Greeting rituals, conversational expectations. Again, how do ch how are children's communication, uh, how would that be different and what, what's expected culturally from a child? Are they uh, allowed? to speak when uh, you know adults are present and again that's not a great example there but you understand where I'm coming from with that we have to know where uh, wh what what's valued in a culture and, and what's not what's negative so cultural dimensions occur along a continuum an individual may demonstrate behavior that falls anywhere along that continuum and there are a wide variety of factors that we've already talked about that may influence how cultural dimensions are manifested by each individual including individual differences, individuals, you know, and again, that would be the person, individual circumstances, things that are going on externally. And then we've already talked about assimilation versus acculturation. So what implications do we have with these cultural dimensions that are important for speech language pathologists? So cultural dimensions, like we already talked about, influence our verbal and our nonverbal behaviors during all of our communicative interactions. And they affect how individuals convey trust or distrust. It's so important with our families. And what they interpret as friendly versus unfriendly, interested versus bored. Uh, for example, friendliness is usually conveyed by what? Listening without interrupting the speaker if you are in a high power distance culture. So if you're in a culture, again, that really has distinct roles and relationships, and again, in regard to power, so who is the authority figure there? Friendliness there is conveyed by, not by talking, but by listening. And so um, Friendliness in an uncertainty avoidance culture would be using formal and really specific language so that there's not 
that, oh, what does she mean? Oh, you know, they're very, very distinct and very specific. In an individualistic culture, friendliness would be conveyed by what? It would be conveyed by talking and having a conversation, so verbally disclosing information. And then in a highly masculine culture, what would be a way to convey friendliness? It would be using what? an assertive style of communication. And so when we fail to recognize these variations, it can result in crucial miscommunications. And so, uh, for example, you know, we've seen this even, uh, and we've heard about it certainly in school districts, and again, talking about older children, uh, where professionals in an education setting may value low power distance, and so they may attempt to treat students and clients and patients and families as equal and encourage them to participate in setting goals. But someone who's from a high power distance culture, you know, really may question the competence of a professional who wants to include them. And you certainly have heard that. You've heard parents say to you, why are you asking me? You're the professional. You tell me what we need to work on. You tell me what we need to decide. And so again, when we do that, those discrepancies may negatively impact our communication with families. And so uh, we have to be super careful of that. And as speech language pathologists, we have to make sure that our, um, you know, that we don't face conflicts with families whose cultural beliefs are different from our own. And so if we are independent and we value active experimentation, we really may alienate a family if they support dependence and if they support compliance. And again, they don't understand that that's a cultural difference there. And so research suggests that when clients or patients or families view themselves as similar to their healthcare providers in terms of cultural and linguistic background, your relationship is going to be strengthened. And so patient-centered communication is one factor noted to affect that perceived personal similarity. So what does that mean? That means we communicate in the style that families want us to communicate in. When we sense that they are formal and that they are, they really uh, respect that uh, professionalism, that's what we give them. When they're more informal, more laid back, then it's okay to let our hair down a little bit. So this concept further emphasizes the importance of developing rapport with a family, right? To determine the various social influences that will impact our treatment outcomes. Let's talk about cultural responsiveness versus stereotyping. And if you're like me, that's probably crossed your mind a little bit when you are hearing all of this information. So cultural responsiveness requires SLPs to consider how values and norms are uniquely shaped. So we talked about this before, even when individuals share common cultural backgrounds, their values can still be shaped by their own individual experiences and their own interpretations of these experiences. So when we stereotype, what are we doing? We're using preconceptions of a particular population and that may result in inappropriate behaviors, clinical judgments, and decisions that are off target from where we need to be about that person. So for example, Let's say that we're doing feeding therapy. So cultural responsiveness during that feeding therapy would include identification of the individual's personal food history and preferences. So when we stereotype during that, what could we be doing to stereotype during feeding therapy? We could make recommendations solely based on the food preferences most often associated with that culture. And so that could be <laughs> terrible. <laughs> 
uh, if we are making those kinds of assumptions. So we certainly have to consider that there will be uh, individuality in uh, cultural responsiveness. So uh, we do this a lot. When we evaluate children, we're always deciding what, if it's a communication difference versus a disorder. And so cultural responsiveness requires clinicians to distinguish that. Is this a difference or is it a disorder? And so we have to, uh, when we are competent clinically, we have to gain sufficient knowledge of that individual's cultural and linguistic background to avoid making an assumption that the communication pattern constitutes a disorder when the pattern may in in fact be reflecting cultural and linguistic variation. And so I, you know, I think a good way for us to think about this that's a, a probably an example that you can relate to is when we think about dialect. So let's say a child from the deep south moves to the northeast or a speech language pathologist from the deep south decides to upload videos to YouTube and shares that she's a speech pathologist and people comment on her dialect all the time. You can see that. You can certainly see that. And so we're we're we are we think about those factors. We think about those factors a lot when we're evaluating children. Right? Is this something that's um, a part of a child's dialect, or is this a real communication difference? And so we have to uh, when we're doing that. How do we distinguish between communication differences related to a child's culture or communication disorders? So this involves the ability to. Recognize that cultural dimensions and individual variation may influence eye gaze or eye contact, facial expressions, body language, rules of social interaction, child rearing practices, perceptions of mental health, physical health, illness and disability, and patterns of superior and subordinate roles in relation to status by age, gender, gender identity, or class. And so again, that's another quote basically saying the same thing that we can't that cultures influence these individual variations and even among the same culture, we will still see individualism. So we have to continue to review cultural and linguistic variables and factors that influence communication to determine if the patterns are consistent with their cultural background or uh, their linguistic background. And again, if this is a true, um, a true disorder or uh, difference there. And we, ha we have to be able to distinguish those disorders from communication differences. So we have to identify a communication difference as a variation of a symbol system used by a group of individuals that reflect and is determined by shared regional, social, or cultural, or ethnic factors. And we have to recognize that those variations are rule-based and it's not a disorder there. And so, for example, again, the accent or the dialect does not reflect an articulation disorder. My vowels are different from your vowels, probably. <laughs> it's not a disorder, right? And then incorporate the cognitive learning styles of individuals and avoid the expectation of mainstream methods for problem solving and communication. We can't put all children in the same pigeonholes, right? And so, um, let's say one other thing here. Although clinicians, and this is research-based, although clinicians work to avoid misidentifying language and dialect differences as disorders, research demonstrates that children from minority backgrounds who speak non-mainstream English dialects are less likely 
to receive the needed services than similar white peers. And so again, sometimes we, we go the other way. It's not that we're saying that children from different cultures aren't assimilating or aren't using English in the way that we expect them to. Sometimes we miss it. We miss the disorder because we're thinking that's a cultural difference and I'm not going to provide services because that's just part of his culture when if a white kid were doing the same kinds of things he would get services. So that's a different kind of discrimination when we're not giving access to those services. And so rather than a strictly dialect versus disorder framework, um, the current research is from ASHA that clinicians would use a disorder within a dialect framework to keep the conversation about the nature and prevalence of childhood language disorders across dialects at the forefront. And so we're not just again assuming that everything is a dialectal difference here or a cultural difference. We're really, really looking at um, that and and teasing those differences out so that we can provide services and not miss a kid who needs services. So a related, uh, per, a related point to this that I'm sure you've experienced in the last few years is uh, wh what we're gonna do about a person first or identity first terminology. So a person first, let's use the autism as an example because that's just been a huge, uh, topic in our field and it has been for a long time those of you who are younger clinicians we went through this about 20 years ago <laughs> when autism first became really really prevalent and we when we were using a term like he's autistic and this this kid this uh, you know this little autistic client of mine and then we were told no stop you have got to use a person first identity here and so or I'm sorry a person first uh, way to describe it so it would be a person with autism a boy with autism a girl with autism and then now what happened it switched again with the pendulum has swung back so that we are able to use an identity first and so terminology used to describe individuals varies among families some families are highly offended when you call their child autistic versus saying your child with autism. And so we really have to honor those individual preferences and figure out how a family wants to talk about it. And when in doubt, what should we do? We ask. We ask the families that we're serving how they feel about that and what they want us to do. Now let's look at cultural responsiveness and clinical service delivery. And again, some of this kind of gets a little bit repetitive, but we want to be sure that we're reviewing everything ASHA wants us to review so that we can meet that requirement. So clinically competent service providers recognize and address the cultural and linguistic variables that affect service delivery while individualizing assessment and treatment strategies. You should be able to say that now because I've read that same sentence, I think, in every, every section of this course. And so what does this individualization encompass? It ensures that when we do that, we are not overgeneralizing regarding a person's cultural or linguistic background. And so when we're saying here, service delivery, what are we talking about? We're talking about identification, assessment, treatment, and then management or counseling. So when providing services, what are these everyday things that we should consider when we're looking at cultural responsiveness? Well, the first one is if the environment setup is inviting, is it accessible? Will we need to modify scheduling and appointment times due to cultural and individual values that may influence availability? 
Uh, and certainly, I have, uh, this is a consideration, you know, even when I was doing a lot of speaking around the country and uh, got invited to speak in the Northeast and we were talking about that and certainly in, in a predominantly Jewish environment, Sabbath, when they started Sabbath on Friday, will, will we be out in time for me to be able to observe Sabbath? And so those kinds of modifications are necessary and I bet that you've encountered those. And if you haven't, you, you might need to start talking about that with families. Uh, and sometimes families are reluctant to talk about that. They don't want you to see them as causing a problem or something that, again, they may, they may not speak up about those things. And so that certainly is, is something that we should approach them about. So the appropriateness and cultural sensitivity of materials used during assessment and intervention activities. Do you have things that a family would find offensive, for lack of a better word? We don't need to use that. Individual perceptions of assessment, possible diagnosis, and intervention strategies. How does that family feel culturally about having um, their child diagnosed with a speech language disorder? Is that something that's going to be okay for them emotionally and psychologically? So we have to consider that. All right, so those were the general things. Let's talk about culturally responsive considerations during assessment. And again, this is on page, I think we're on page four. Yep, this is the bottom of page four on your handout. So how can we make sure that we are culturally responsive during an assessment? So case histories include information about an individual's communication characteristics as they compare to others from the same community. So what does this really mean? In, in, in reality, in real everyday practice, we're going to ask open-ended questions rather than asking the person who's responding to select from options that may not be appropriate for them. The next thing we're gonna do that we've said over and over, we're not gonna make assumptions about an individual or a family based on just their general cultural, ethnic, or racial information. And so we're going to actually take that case history process really, really seriously and gather specific knowledge based on the diverse views that may be represented. We're going to encourage the interviewee to provide information that they feel is relevant rather than to respond to clinician presented questions. So we call this ethnographic interviewing. So we're letting the, the person that we're talking to just talk and tell us what's important to them and what, how they are seeing and interpreting their child's uh, inability to communicate. What kind of what kind of uh, difficulty are they having with that in everyday life? And so this style of interviewing can provide insight into individual perceptions, views, desires, and expectations. So what might our strategies for interviewing during the case history, what should they look like if we're culturally responsive? So we're gonna ask open-ended questions rather than yes or no questions. We're going to restate what has been said by repeating the exact words rather than paraphrasing or interpreting. And that's something that I do a lot. I try to paraphrase and sometimes I miss what uh, someone is actually saying to me. So to get it right, use their same words. Uh, we summarize statements and we provide the opportunity for correction in the case of misinterpretation. And so we say, is this what you're saying? And we, 
We repeat what they've said back to us. We avoid multiple questions posed in rapid succession and or multi-part questions. And so we as SLPs in that, uh, in our hurriedness to get through, let me just get all these questions out of the way so I can start the real part of the assessment, which is how I look at this child. And you know, again, we want to avoid that. We want to avoid leading questions that tend to direct the person to a specific response. And we avoid using why questions because questions, why questions sound judgmental and they may increase defensiveness in a parent. So now let's talk about assessment tools and what we can do to be culturally responsive. Under most conditions, the use of standardized tests alone is not a comprehensive approach to determine whether an individual has a communication disorder. And guys, that's true no matter race, ethnicity, gender, culturally, where what's going on, you know, standardized tests alone are never going to give you the full picture of what's going on with the child and his or her family. So another part about standardized tests is the test scores are invalid for the test taker if they're not represented in the normative group that, um, that they used for standardization. And if the even if the test is administered as instructed, if the child who is taking that test, if he, if he was not reflected at all in the standardization sample, those results may not be valid. And so in these cases, standardized tests can't be used to determine the presence or absence of a communication disorder, but we're still gonna test why, because we're gonna get invaluable info or valuable information descriptively about what the child can and can't do. So we're gonna learn about his abilities and his limitations in the language of the test. So for example, if you give the test in English, you are assessing what? The child's ability to understand English, not the child's ability to understand language. Uh, formal test environments and assessment tools may be unfamiliar to individuals who have not had exposure to mainstream educational uh, context and to the culture of testing. And again, that's verbal and nonverbal components. And here we're talking about not only kids, but who, but parents. Sometimes they don't, they don't even know what a speech therapy assessment, what, the, what that whole visit's going to look like. They, don't, they may not realize that you're going to ask them questions. They may think it's all testing, or a parent might think that it's, that, you know, again, that you're not really gonna sit down with a two-year-old and flip through an assessment protocol. And a lot of times you are. And so you have to really talk with parents about that and what the assessment process entails. Uh, assessments, uh, accommodations and modifications are made during assessments. And so what do we do? <clears throat> What are your common modifications? We can reword and provide additional test instructions other than those allowed when we're presenting trial items. So what do we have to do when we do that? We just have to document that we used accommodations and modifications. We might provide additional cues or repeat any stimuli that may not be permitted. So sometimes we're doing that. Sometimes we allow for extra time. Sometimes we skip items that are inappropriate <laughs> for a child or we might ask the child for an explanation of the correct or incorrect responses when that's not how the test was standardized, uh, or we might use alternate scoring rubrics. And so again, there can never be a one-to-one -one translation for test items, and you've probably noticed that when you, even when you use an interpreter during testing, your interpreter may go, 
I don't know how to say that, or this isn't quite as close as we need it to be. Languages vary across many factors, including the order of acquisition of vocabulary, morphology, and syntactic structures. So the grammar is different, the word order is different, and so well-developed standardized tests are difficult to find for individuals who use a language other than or in addition to spoken English. And so you may have to do, again, some digging to figure out what to do. And we talked about before that our best bet is to talk to another provider or another person who has experience with that particular culture. It is our responsibility during assessment when we make accommodations and modifications that we document what we did for that, all right? That's all for assessment for cultural uh, responsiveness. Let's move on now to treatment and the things we need to do. Let's talk about culturally responsive considerations during treatment. So treatment is always initiated with what? With an understanding of all the factors that are going into whatever's going on with the child, right? So that could be environmental factors, the language context of the individual and their family. And again, every effort should be made to minimize or remove any barrier. And that would be a physical barrier, a cultural barrier, a linguistic barrier, or an institutional barrier to intervention. And so we talked about that at the beginning. Um, the things that we do, the, what, what might be a barrier to intervention for a particular child. And again, for some, sometimes it's something like you're a center-based service and your kid can't get there. So they have a barrier you know, environmentally like that because they don't have transportation. Uh, we said sometimes it, just a real practical barrier for a lot of children that we see is uh, parental participation. Parents aren't in it. <laughs> and so again, sometimes that's a cultural factor. And so we have to really think about that and decide how we're going to accommodate that and what we can do to help a parent uh, participate more fully. Um, other kinds of things that we need to think about, culturally relevant stimuli and experiences are to be included in intervention programs as appropriate. So uh, really uh, specific vocabulary that we might introduce that would be important to a family. I want to go back right now I, and I, I want to talk about the nature of family and caregiver involvement during intervention because it, with us, as I was talking about before, that's a big barrier for lots of children that we see. And so let's talk about that. So we selected considerations may influence individual expectations of the clinician and the therapeutic process. And so let's, let's talk about some of these. We, we've used some of these examples, but let's talk about it here. Because again, what are we doing? We're talking about treatment and what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, those day-in and day-out therapy sessions. So sometimes a barrier might be that a parent consistently defers to you as the expert. Why is that a problem? Because they are not taking ownership of their child's progress. They are not seeing that they can be more responsible or more, uh, let's just say it like this. They need to be, their involvement can directly impact a child's progress or lack of progress. And so we need parents to understand that. And in, in even especially when they have not known that before. And when there has been that cultural, and again, I, I don't want to impose my beliefs and my values in this whole American 
way to get in there and get it done. But at the same time, we have to respect that. But at the same time, understand where the parent's coming from so that they see themselves as an important role in their child's ability to learn language. Uh, another factor here is a cultural difference that would influence the nature and level of the individual's participation based on the perceptions of their role. And so again, a mom who's from a culture where women aren't as assertive, uh, that might certainly be something that we see and would uh, adapt to. Therapy techniques that promote behavior patterns inconsistent with family values. And so again, if there's a cultural difference where we always keep talking about eye contact and things like turn taking and even things like children who, um, you know, there might be some situations, and again, I'm not going to say any specific culture, where a child is seen and not heard, or where talking to an adult in the context of, um, say, where other adults are present and children are not usually present, you know, there are going to be some things that you have to navigate through that. And so you have to talk with families about that. And certainly how language and communication patterns are taught and influenced, again, by the culture, we're going to need to know those things so that we can determine what's important to a family and what's not important to a family. Lastly, let's talk about here how to be culturally responsive during counseling. So culturally diverse views of disorders and disabilities are considered when we're providing counseling because those cultural variations affect the beliefs about the causes of the disorder as well as how the person with the disorder should be treated. And so again, you will see everything uh, when we start to, uh, again, give a family a diagnosis for a child. That may be something that, that culturally they are not prepared for. They didn't expect that. Cultural views may also influence individual goals as well as caregiver goals for the person with the disorder or disability. And so each family unit has a system that's well established way before we get there, right? And with those family systems, even a child, a child having a communication disorder or a parent perceiving that disorder as a disability is really going to reflect that entire family. And we know that. And again, this is, this is across cultures, right? And so relationships are built and maintained through communication and they're severely and significantly impacted uh, when a child has a communication disorder. And so when we're counseling, families about this, it's so important to recognize those unique relationships and recognize how a family member's disorder among uh, just is going to affect the functioning of the entire family system. So we've talked about cultural dimensions. Remember we talked about child rearing and uh, the, the family roles expectations. So let's let's talk about how cultural dimensions uh, that influence counseling, what these include. It can include the effect of the disability on their particip participation in just in life. And so sometimes a parent will say, will he be able to go to school? Will he graduate from high school? Is there a place for him? And so again, that's what they're looking for. What, what does this mean about his life? How, how, what does this mean for my life? Is, is he going to be able to be educated within the public school system? Uh, the need for an acceptance of special treatment or special education. Sometimes that's a really big deal to families when they start to realize that speech therapy in the public school system is under 
the Department of Special Education. That's a big pill for a lot of families to swallow. Acceptance for the use of technology for treatment. So how does the family feel about that? What, what role would their culture um, have influenced regarding that? Uh, we have to recognize that families or the mainstream, um, the family may judge some of the things that we do as potentially harmful. We may judge some of the child rearing practices that families use as potentially harmful. I've certainly encountered that uh, in my career and especially at the beginning when I was a, you know, a really young therapist and a young mother and didn't always understand those differences and may have misjudged some families and thought some things that I felt like were inappropriate. Again, really, really normal in the culture that they're from. Uh, cultural values may uh, conflict with our mainstream values in terms that we've already talked about these terms, in terms of how independent a family is, if they are from an individualism versus collectivism. So how does an individual fit into that whole as a culture or society? We've talked about the power distances. Do we want our our uh, authority figures to be have a lot of distance between ourselves and them or are we all more equal what about avoiding uncertainty if you give a family that they have uncertainty avoidance if you're talking with them about we don't know what's going on with your child we don't know how his outcome is going to be we don't know if he'll ever talk that's really disconcerting to families who are from that kind of culture and that kind of background. The whole masculinity, femininity thing. I'm certainly as a, a, a field that we're predominantly women, we certainly have experienced that in those dynamics with uh, men from different cultures and how they perceive us as American women and what's, what's okay and what's not okay. Uh, it could also be, again, we've talked about time orientation is really different in some cultures than it is here in ours. Uh, and certainly the whole indulgence versus restraint. And that really comes into a factor when we talk about play. You know, how important is play in a culture? Sometimes parents don't get that that's how we're teaching language. They, they think that it should be a sit down more educator, educatee uh, kind of relationship than we typically have and that we typically model for them in early intervention. So those are certainly things to think about. Some cultures may have remedies or practices that we professionals do not understand or embrace. And again, we may even view those as harmful. And so we have to really discern whether a family's cultural beliefs and practices are truly cultural variations or if in fact there is harm and abuse going on because we, we just cannot tolerate that uh, with the children and families that we're working with. And so culturally sensitive counseling uh, can provide information as well as alternative safe treatments when we feel that a family again may be doing something that um, uh, they, they don't understand is could be potentially harmful to their child. So in addition, uh, parents may have religious or spiritual beliefs and practices that may take precedence before any kind of educational or medical recommendation can be considered or accepted. And so we have to certainly take that into account. And so if beliefs or practices are misunderstood or unknown, uh, they may interfere with even the recommendations that we're making and they may undermine any kind of intervention. A family may not want 
diagnosis. They may not be interested in that at all. They just want you to come in and provide those services. And so again, we have to really, really be sensitive to that. And cultural responsiveness, I think, is important for all families, particularly during counseling. All right, now here's our last section. It's called Public Policy Concerning Cultural Responsiveness. So what is the law? <laughs> what is mandated for we as speech-language pathologists? Uh, what must we do? So there are a number of laws and regulations that have implications for culturally responsive provision of audiology and speech pathology services. And so we're going to briefly look at what these laws are. And this is just, again, a snippet of information. But I just want to be sure that you have it when we're looking at this, because I think it is important to know uh, what's legal and what's not, and what you are required to do and, and what you don't have to do as, again, uh, a part of looking at, at this. So. ADA, that's our first one, American Disabilities Act, right? The ADA is intended to protect persons with disabilities and to guarantee them access to and participation in society. The statute is specifically directed by employment, public accommodations, and public services. And so again, that would be services delivered by or funded by state and local government. So if you are working with a state early intervention program, this is why you have to comply with this. And so certainly uh, these statutes also apply to public transportation and to telecommunication. And so to be protected by ADA, what has, what, who falls under that? Who, who do these laws apply to? One must have a disability. So that's defined by the ADA as a physical or mental impairment that uh, substantially limits one or more major life activities, having a history or a record of such impairment or to be perceived by others as having an impairment. So that, that's when you're protected under ADA. So what does the government have to provide for you? What kinds of things must you have? What kinds of things must businesses uh, be able to provide? for an individual with a disability. So that's what ADA entails. The next one is the Equal Educational Opportunities Act. And again, this is of 1974, so we established this a long time ago in the United States. All children enrolled in public schools are entitled to equal educational opportunity without regard to race, color, sex, or national origin. And again, this is how we think about fairness or non-discrimination. No matter what's going on with the child, if they are enrolled in public school, they have and are entitled to um, an education. And that's what we provide for them. The next one you may not know um, as well is Executive Order Number 13166. And this is from the year 2000, so 23 years ago. It requires federal agencies to examine the services they provide and identify any need for services to those with limited English proficiency and to develop and implement a system to provide those services so that the persons with limited English proficiency can have meaningful access to the information that we are trying to uh, give to them. So this is applicable to healthcare providers who receive federal funds. So if you are in a state early intervention program, that would affect you. If there's, uh, if you are billing Medicaid or your state resource there, that would affect you. So uh, again, 
we have to with when there's limited English proficiency we have to do everything that we can to provide the information in the family's language so that they um, can make better decisions for their children. That's how it all boils down to. All right, the next set of laws here is FERPA. And so what is FERPA? The Family Education, I, I wish that I had written it out. I thought I would remember, but FERPA. It protects the, and, and this is, this is uh, akin to HIPAA, but within the educational system, so public school system. So it protects the privacy of student education records. So the law applies to all schools that receive funds under an applicable program from the Department of Education. FERPA gives parents certain rights with respect to their children's education records, and those rights transfer to kids when they're 18 years old or attend a school beyond the high school level. So FERPA is really, really important for privacy. Our main thing with FERPA is, um, release of records, right? And what, what's available to a parent? Can a parent have access to their child's records? Uh, what, what can parents, uh, what are they allowed to know? And so materials in this record are to be provided in a manner that is culturally and linguistically accessible uh, so that all individuals understand their rights. And that, that's certainly something that we cover with um, IFSPs and IEPs, right? The next one is HIPAA. I mentioned that already. Uh, HIPAA, and again, that's privacy. Your health information is protected because it's private. So that HIPAA, uh, and if you worked, again, for as long as I have, HIPAA was a really big deal uh, when, when this was established. It requires the establishment of national standards for electronic healthcare transactions and national identifiers for providers, health insurance plans, and employers. And so it gives individuals who are aged 12 to 18 the right to privacy. The provider must have a signed disclosure from the affected person before giving out any information on provided health care to anyone else, including the patient's parents. And so again, that's a problem uh, for some families and for some parents. And I totally understand that. <laughs> Uh, the provisions also address the security and privacy of health data and materials are to be provided in a manner that is, again, culturally and linguistically accessible. Um, so parents can access the information about their children and, and individuals so that uh, older children too can understand their own rights. Okay, let's look at the next one is IDEA. Uh, from 2006, it made significant steps toward addressing problems with inappropriate identification and disproportionate representations of children with disabilities by race and ethnicity. And so IDEA requires states to review ethnicity data in addition to race data to determine the presence of disproportionality. So what is disproportionality? That means that there's a group that's overrepresented or underrepresented in, in um, when we're looking at special education programs relative to the number of the overall student population. So if there's a significant disproportionality, if it's determined the state is required to review and revise the policies, procedures, and practices, and the local education agency is required to reserve uh, the maximum amount of funds to provide services to local children um, in the groups that were significantly over-identified. And so, again, what are we saying? We're saying that bottom line here for us as clinicians, 
we don't want kids missed. We want every child who needs uh, our services, who is having difficulty understanding and using language, we want every child to have access to those services, regardless of the family that he was born into, regardless of the color of his skin or the the nationality or whatever factor that you want to do. So that's what we want to do. And we want to make sure, again, that we don't have, we also don't have any population that's overrepresented so that we're not classifying a communication difference as a disorder or we're not, again, uh, stereotyping with, with regard to race or any other factor that would have that you would have found with this all right the next one is the patient protection and affordable care act so obamacare <laughs> so it addresses the expansion of health care coverage to populations that may have not been served in the past explicitly linking health literacy to patient protection and then offering the funds or grants for those programs to increase cultural responsiveness so with um, the affordable care act and again as far as lots of these laws, relatively uh, newer. It uses specific language regarding patient-provider communication. We have to uh, we have to communicate health and healthcare information clearly. We have to promote prevention, especially in uh, populations that have not had access to high-quality healthcare. We have to ensure equity and cultural competence, and again, deliver that high-quality care. All right, the last law here that we're looking at is Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so it was updated in 1989. And so this is a discrimination uh, law. And so in any federally funded program, we cannot have discrimination on the basis of race, color, or national origin. And all of our public programs, so all of your Head Start programs, hospitals, clinics, nursing homes, public schools, any program that receives federal financial assistance, that would be grants, training, use of equipment, any other assistance from the United States federal government. All providers who work for our agencies are required to provide language access services to patients, again, who do not speak English. That's the primary concern for lots of these laws, and so that certainly includes uh, the families from other cultures that we have been talking about today. All right, so this was a lot of information for you to process, but congratulations. We are at the end of this course. Please refer to your handouts often as you are wrestling uh, with your own uh, through that process of self-reflection so that you can see how you are doing developing your own culturally responsive practice almost every word that I said today sometimes directly <laughs> is from the practice portal page at ASHA and again that's ASHA.org and it's titled cultural responsiveness and it's not in the regular section i've forgotten exactly how asha lays that out but it's in a section that that's not with diagnoses that you would you typically look at if you're like me when you go to asha it's in the other the other section there uh, if you have not purchased your ce credit for this course the link is going to be below if you're watching me here on YouTube. If you're listening to the podcast, it's course number 464 at my website. And again, my website is Teach Me to Talk. 
while you're there, I hope that you'll check out our other courses. We have almost 90 different courses for you to choose from, and they all, most of them are an hour in length. Some are an hour and a half, and some like today's presentation and like uh, the course on supervision, which is also a required course by ASHA at one time in your career. So if you've not done that clinical supervision course, I hope that you'll consider my course on that. That is course 449. Uh, the courses that we, uh, let me tell you a little bit about that before we're finished here today. The courses that I do are all related to early intervention. So all related to babies, toddlers, and early preschoolers all with a focus on early language development. So for therapists who work in early intervention programs and in preschool programs, these courses are, we are so blessed to be able to provide them for free on YouTube. So please encourage the parents of the children that you are working with uh, to watch those courses. And again, sometimes parents and think that an hour or an hour and a half is a long stretch of time for information. So encourage them just to digest the shows as they can, just in smaller chunks, because again, such a privilege for them to be able to have that kind of information, the same kinds of information that you do. And we're so excited that we get to provide that service here at Teach Me To Talk. And in case I haven't said it, I wanna really, really thank you for joining me for this course. And if you are a regular at Teach Me To Talk, we love that. And if you're not, we so want you to be. <laughs> we wanna be your main provider for all the continuing education opportunities that you need to pursue. All right, so that's it for today. I'm Laura Mize, Pediatric Speech-Language Pathologist. And thank you so much for joining me for this course, number 464, DEI Basics for Speech-Language Pathologists and Other Therapists in Early Intervention and Pediatrics. Thank you.